Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Hong Kong. What's the future of the art world there now that a new national security law threatens freedom of expression? At 11pm on the 30th of June, on the eve of the 23rd anniversary of Hong Kong's sovereignty handover to China, a new national security law came into effect in the former British colony. The law criminalises acts of secession, subversion of the state, terrorism and collusion with foreign forces. Offenders could be jailed for life. Notably, the law was drafted by Beijing, bypassing Hong Kong's legislature. In this podcast, we get the views of an artist based in Hong Kong, Casey Wong, and of the commentator Alexandra Seno on the implications of the new law for artists and the wider art world. And regular listeners will know that in recent months we've had a feature called Lonely Works, in which we've explored art behind the doors of museums closed due to the coronavirus. But now that most museums around the world are reopening, we've brought the series to an end, and we're renaming it Work of the Week, with the same focus on a single artwork in every podcast. This week, Alice Mann, the author of a new book, The Marquis de Sade and the Avant-Garde, explores one of Leonor Feeney's illustrations for Story of O by Pauline Rayage. Before all that, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper, and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. So, to Hong Kong. Casey Wong is an artist who has a particular interest in social activism and is based in this so-called special administrative region of China. So how does he feel about the new national security law? What are the implications for him and other artists? I spoke to him on the line from Hong Kong. Casey, on your website and when you talk about your work, you describe social activism and contemporary art very much together. Can you say something about the fact that social activism is at the heart of your practice as an artist? I didn't know about that in the beginning. You know, my first degree is actually architecture. But now looking back, I, I realise my art practice actually came from that architectural practice. And within that core is the kind of humanism. That, that is to say, try to do good to society, to people in general, by either building architecture or building an interior or building something or making something. So as I migrate from architecture practice to fine art practice, then I slowly realize what I really want to achieve. That is to say, not only a beautiful object, but also try to achieve something like nice and beautiful, but almost like a like a, a higher uh, spiritual thing than than just just a physical object. So that's that's how I look at what my practice is really about. Right, and I mean protests are both the backdrop and often the kind of substance of your work, right? You've done, for, for many years now, you have gone onto the streets at pro-democracy protests and made work right at the heart of the protest. Can you say something about those live art works that you've made actually on the scene at protests? Well, ever since um, the Ai Weiwei kidnap incident back in 2011, 
I realized this uh, uh, the kind of loss of freedom or the, or the gate of freedom is being slammed shut by the Chinese Communist Party. And then I start to uh, you know go to, go to the street and participate in in protests. That is actually my kind of wake up call. And then slowly I realize I can empower people by bringing my art, such as large props or cosplay, to kind of live art performance work on the street. So I don't have to rely on uh, the traditional gallery or museums to commission me or invite me to to do something that that is on time, at the same time uh, about self-expression, at the same time empower people, right? Because it's on the street, there's no limitation to the size or, or like you don't have to uh, buy entrance tickets and is freely available for the public to enjoy uh, one might not look at it as an art and and which is which is good sometimes because you can really test the strength of the work and often you know you know how good the work is when people just you know give you a thumbs up or you know a big smile on their face when they see you and that's how that's what I enjoy you know kind of like hidden art yeah secret performance but that, I mean that for instance you, on one occasion you dressed up as a police officer or a kind of special police officer, essentially. And we're sort of performing songs on the street. And, you, you know, there's a video of that and with, with footage where, you know, the audience is applauding you, as you say, and you bring a smile to people's faces. But it's also sort of deadly serious, right? You are right at the heart of the situation where people are essentially taking their lives into their own hands. And there's, you know, it, these, these are really um, urgent moments in terms of political protest. Well, in the beginning, let's say, uh, comparing to the situation like 10 years ago, um, this kind of traditional uh, protest on the street is uh, definitely our rights. And we have been kind of voicing, uh, when I say we, I'm saying uh, the people of Hong Kong, voicing our, our dissatisfaction with the government continuously. And then you can see in the past 10 years, slowly progress to umbrella movement during uh, 2014, uh, during the Occupy Zones uh, situation, where a lot of uh, artworks start to uh, spring up, and and then you know, situation getting a bit more tense and getting a bit more violence, as well as the police, right? Like last year, two thousand nineteen is really a turning point. Um, the the police brutality escalated escalated so much, and and as well as those oppositional groups uh, from the citizens themselves. So nowadays, I, I would say uh, bringing large props, like I used to have this pink tank uh, that I parade down the street. Uh, this kind of uh, era is gone because uh, we, we're talking about uh, random shootings of pepper balls and, and tear gas, and, and you don't know who's standing next to you, right? I mean, he might have a knife and stab you, and it happens in the past. So So... Right now, it's all about be water, be mobile, and and just run away as quick as possible. So, so yeah, so a lot of cosplay going on instead of having large scale uh, props. Okay, can you say something about the cosplay and, and you know uh, what role that plays in in your work relating to protests? Well, for me, in the beginning, it's more like uh, um, trying to make a statement, right? Like uh, trying to like like art. I think it should be about revealing the in, invisible 
if you go to museums and look galleries, often artists, you know, have this sensitivity. It's a kind of one step ahead of the crowd, and I want my art to be like that. And so, so often deals with like fear about like mainland Chinese police are coming to Hong Kong to arrest people, or or you know the gangs that is around. So, so I use cosplay as almost like a storytelling methodology, you know, uh, almost like a child. So I, I I dress up this as as the villains, or one time I even dress up like Moses, okay, walking down uh, with my tablet of the five demands. Uh, so so basically, it's a very it's a kind of dark humor uh, storytelling uh, performance uh, amongst the crowd, and 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 you'll be surprised because when you go down in the protest site in Hong Kong. There are so many things to see. Unlike if you、uh, do it in a traditional museum, you know anything can be、uh, treated as art. But whereas in the protest protest site,、uh, for you to really stand out it takes a lot of effort sometimes because there's so many so many people and so much happening at the same time. So cosplay for 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 me is is in the beginning was like storytelling, but now it's getting even more about hiding one's identity. Because the struggle of Hong Kong basically transformed from the 2014、uh, traditional civil disobedience to the current uncivil disobedience,、uh, which is about you know, hiding one's identity, black block, be water, you know, you know, cheat the CCTV, that sort of thing. So、uh, you know, fake mustache and、uh, a lot of makeups helps to hide hide your face. So tell me about that, your feelings then about this new national security law. As you say, there's been you 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 you've intimated there that there's been this steady,、um, much more serious crackdown on the protests to to the extent that when you're saying in the 2019 protest, the protests right now they they have been that much more different, so that you you felt that you couldn't make certain kinds of work amid the protests, but. Do you feel that the new law is another escalation and, and places even greater pressure on you as a protester and as an artist in all, in terms of your visibility and the capacity that the authorities have to act against you? I think right now the national security law totally destroyed Hong Kong. I mean, it, it is like ten times worse than what you just said. We're talking about.、Um, You know, treason. We're talking about you know people、uh, can get caught in any、uh, weird situation.、Uh, like a while ago, a few days ago, there was some、uh, people just holding blank A4 piece of white paper, okay, as a form of protest, and they got snatched. Or it can be anything. It can be a black T-shirt. It can be、uh, you're holding. You have a keychain or something, or you have a, a sticker saying saying justice. And you, they, they will arrest you as、uh, as evidence because it's open. That law is now open for interpretation、uh, for the police. So, so once once they arrest you, and in 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 case they want to charge you, you have no、uh, opportunity to to defend yourself. Not 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 like the common law that we have been uh, 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 practicing in Hong Kong for hundreds of years. So this is something totally.、Uh, Uh, Chinese homebrew superimposed on our system. So, I mean, I, all my friends 
who 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 weren't who weren't uh, concerned about politics or society in general, now they are so scared. <laughs> you know, I was so surprised. So so this matter is not only a creative people matter or art and、uh, creative people, but it concerns everybody. A lot of、uh, fear. Uh, generated self censorship and as well as、uh, thinking about you know running away immigration or or moving their money away from Hong Kong, so this is a, a really a devastating blow to Hong Kong. That devastating blow, I'm sort of interested in to what extent. Like for instance, you you talking to me is that, do you feel uncomfortable even doing this? You know, even expressing yourself to me over this interview. I mean, is is this is this a dangerous? Activity that we're engaging in now, in terms of this new law. Yes, it is because in that in that stupid law, they they have a criteria called spying, and it's written for you. <laughs> so and and don't think that if you are a foreigner or if you have a foreign passport that it can protect you. The answer is no. I mean, we're talking about a KGB style operatives. Okay, they they have. Track record of of kidnapping, killing people, or or disposal of bodies. So so this is like totally、uh, kind of unheard of for people of Hong Kong. That's why they're so scared. Right, and obviously you know that for instance the UK government has said that that people in Hong Kong can come to the UK. Are, are you and are people around you considering leaving Hong Kong? Is that something that you see as an option? Well, it's already happening. I mean, I have. Personal friends who already migrated to Taiwan, and、uh, you know、uh, some people, a、uh, few friends of mine who are Canadian origin, and now they move back to Canada, or and then one went to Texas. So this is a, it is a big escalation of, of of of、uh, moving out or brain drain for the for the creative people. But personally, I'm not planning to leave. This is Hong Kong is my home, you know. I I, I think I'll,、uh, you know, I I get all these questions about when are you leaving, you know, Casey? Are you leaving? Are you scared? That kind of questions. You no, know, I have an official answer, right? The official answer is, is yeah, I, I I'm you know I I probably will get arrested, you know, one or two times, and you know maybe broke a bones here and there, and if I don't come out cuckoo, you know, then I think about leaving. But but Hong Kong is my home, so why should I leave? They should leave. Right, but so so what you're saying is that you will continue to actively protest. This isn't putting you off the idea because you because you're so committed to protesting now that even this extraordinarily draconian situation is not putting you off, and you will fight for your human rights. I think、uh, I'm not that grand. I'm <laughs> I'm scared too, right? Um, but what I'm saying is, if you really look deep into this、uh, national security law, it is not designed for like a, a small potato like me. It is, it is actually a, a multi-billion-dollar、uh, lucrative business, <laughs> right? Because they 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 they're first going to try to arrest those uh, runaway uh, from from mainland.、Uh, they I heard like two hundred three hundred of them are hiding in Hong Kong. You know, by catching one of them, they get like millions of dollars, and then they're gonna like、uh, devastate the legal system, which they already、uh, doing right now. Maybe the next wave would be、uh, punish those lawyers so that、uh, if you got arrested, you have nobody to defend you because the attorneys are so scared. 
And then wave after wave of purging. That may be like little small little potato like me. So <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm on the back, kind of back of the line, but the the enemy of the state, you know, in their eyes, is so long the list. So I'm not gonna worry too much. And also, it's not a don't take too, don't take the, that law too seriously. Sometimes I think because uh, the Chinese law doesn't work like the Western law. You know, they first have a target, and then they snatch you, and then they pin a crime on you, rather than you committed a crime, and then they snatch you. So I I told my wife, you know, if they got me, I know they're gonna they're gonna、uh, pin me for like multiple prostitutions or something like that. And my wife already pardoned me, so you know, I got the、uh, permit. Thank you. <laughs> So, I mean, the thing is, I mean, you've, you're using humour as a kind of way of deflecting from this appalling situation, and in fact, that's a characteristic that you've used all the way through your work. You mentioned, you know, dressing up as Moses and going down to these protests. That seems to me. I mean, you did a TED talk, and I really urge listeners to this to to watch your TED talk because, in a way, you see humour as a, as a kind of key means of of addressing protesting these days, and that that somehow. Taking a light-hearted approach to the most serious issues has, has helped you in terms of, in, in terms of your, as you say, your your artistry, but also your your humanity, your human response to these crises. Yeah,、well, I guess that's just a part of my nature as a Hong Konger. If you look back in the Hong Kong histories,、uh, Hong Kong in the eighties produced a lot of these uh, uh, funny comedy, like funny kung fu film, for example, very popular, and as well as、uh, like funny dramas and. And we Hong Kong people are used to be that kind of people. Just kind of, we can talk about everything, anything, and and you know, crack a joke about it. As a matter of fact, like personally, I grew up in Hong Kong watching、uh, British comedy such as Monty Python and the Flying Circus, and of course Benny Hill. <laughs> I miss him. I miss the chase. So, but but now it's like the communists barged in and tell everybody to stop laughing. So what we do? We laugh more, right? And how do we laugh more? By, of course,、uh, the kind of treating our work, our artwork, to be a bit more sophisticated, like like the kind of、uh, you know contemporary art、uh, museum that you have seen. You know, usually they're kind of serious and heavy, and and、uh, so no more this kind of blunt. Uh, in your face style work, you know. In the past ten years, I've been doing quite a lot of this kind of blunt in your face style, little humor, and but it's very simple and people can you know because it's not designed for for、uh, you know museum and galleries, more like for the general public. So they should kind of get it in like three seconds. But but now with this new law, I was you know I would I would I would I can see in the future.、Uh, Of course, some artists would、uh, self-censor and kind of like basically keep quiet. That doesn't mean their anger just vanish.、Uh, a lot of artists will keep continue the struggle by using their artwork as their tool to fight against this tyranny and unjust and injustice by by turning their work into more sophistication, more coded. As as we can see, the similar situation happens to mainland China when. The Chinese government cracked down on their own people. The Beijing artists, for example, you know, they it, then they will they they kind of、uh, make it more、uh, double layer, triple layers, and the local people still understand.
Well, Casey, I just wish you all the best and I hope you stay safe and good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to share my thoughts. You can find out more about Casey Wong at his website. That's caseywong.com. Now, of course, Hong Kong has become a hub for Western art organisations over recent years, from galleries like Gagosian and White Cube to the Art Basel Fair. What are the implications of the national security law for this wider art world? Can Western galleries continue to operate in Hong Kong, given the increasingly hardline approach to human rights? Alexandra Seno is a commentator and critic, and she also spoke to me on the line from Hong Kong. I began by asking her what she felt the effects of the new law might be. The main problem at the moment really is that no one is really sure how this will work. And that's where a lot of the tension and the anxiety comes from. But having said that, um, it has not yet been tested in that way for the cultural and arts community. So unfortunately, we don't really know. It's very um, broadly defined. Uh, It was released a day before July 1, so that's handover day, and only released in Chinese, which I think provided even more anxiety for for certain uh, members of, uh, you know, the international arts community. Right. But what about, I mean, because obviously the impetus behind this came from the fact that there were pro-democracy protests and there have been pro-democracy protests for some time, right? Or was there another catalyst? Well, this has always been on the agenda. So that's why it was first floated and kind of not very well sold in some ways to, to stakeholders, to, to the community. But uh, this was has been in the cards since way, way, way before the current protests. Right. Okay. So can you give us a sense of what the, those fears that you talk about are? Because it seems to me that the most important thing is that there are many creative people and and indeed people across the art world who are very concerned about its effect on freedom of expression. So while the law has been, you know, about much bigger things, it is about uh, having a, a national security law defined in the context of a larger China. Um, there has been a lot of concern and, and worry about what this will mean for the creative community. Uh, Hong Kong, by its nature, has a creative community that is very outspoken. They like to make up their own mind. They have their own minds, right? So uh, how that may or may not curtail these uh, expressions, I think, is one one very big concern. Then, of course, there are consequences, like what will land you in prison or what will land you in jail? And then how that will be executed is another great anxiety. So does it mean that, you know, you will be you will be charged uh, in Hong Kong? Does it mean that you could end up serving part of your sentence in the Chinese uh, jail system? Uh, we don't know. And that is, I think, where a lot of the worry is coming from. I mean, I, I think one of the one of the key things that I'm aware of as a distant observer is that it feels like a screw is being turned against the system, which has ultimately provided the sort of uh, ecosystem for the for Western galleries, for instance, and Western artists to feel comfortable in Hong Kong. And now it seems there's anxiety about how long that can be a going concern and it seems like there's an extra focus on so many of the activities of the Chinese state right now which are causing deep concern right across the world and it seems that 
that in the past, re- regardless of what you think about this, certain actors within the, the arts community have been able to ignore that. But it seems to me that they have less capacity to do that now. Mm. Yes, well, um, w- while we really do not know how, how this is going to affect the cultural community, fundamentally, this is really about larger issues, right? So uh, on one hand, it might feel like this is a new time in Hong Kong. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, this was the only direction that the laws and security laws and um, and and uh, relationship with China was going to go. So since handover, you know, it, 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 it has always been going towards integration. It's, it's a little faster, maybe it maybe wasn't executed and presented so uh, as to make people more comfortable, but it was really the only direction. So um, as far as the the art community here goes, I, I don't speak for all of the art community, and I think they're 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 one of the beauties of Hong Kong is that there is a multiplicity of opinions and views. Personally, I um, while I f- I'm not that pessimistic about what this means for art in Hong Kong. Um, one is I think because of the Hong Kong character. People are very creative about how they express these issues. Um, as far as what this means, Hong Kong versus everywhere else, I feel also like we are currently living in a time where globally we are seeing all these things. This is not just Hong Kong. We are seeing new laws being enacted in India, new laws in Russia. Um, we're seeing changes in the way policy for culture is changing in the United States. So I think it's also uh, uh, something within the time like uh, that, that we live in. As to how this will affect commercial activity in Hong Kong, um, I don't really see that changing because um, Hong Kong is a trade destination for the arts because of uh, no sales tax and an open port. That does not change at all with the new law i mean uh i mean when was the last time you saw political art the art that was highly critical of any government selling for a lot of money so i think the nature of art commerce in itself does not really um invite kind of any sort of change um i haven't heard any gallery uh with actual business saying oh this is going to be the end of us or or I'm not really hearing that um, yet or at all. Um, I'm not saying that the, the the opinion doesn't exist that maybe this will change how people think about their art. But, you know, even for art fairs, if you really think of what sells at a fair or in a gallery, that sort of art is not really covered by uh, possible restrictions of, uh, with the new law. Right. I mean, is that is that the case in general? I mean, would you say that... I mean, you know, we do see, even in the context of a commercial event like an art fair, you do see political work in, in let's say, Freeze or Art bars or in bars or whatever. Yeah. Is, would you say that galleries are a bit more conservative when they show work in Hong Kong anyway, with the knowledge that, you know, the conditions there are different? Or, I mean, obviously, there's been a tremendous amount of uh, work made in China that is deeply critical of 
the government, often co encoded languages. But but what I'm getting at is, to what extent is there a language of political protest within the art scene anyway? To what extent is it tempered? And I'm and I and that applies both to artists in Asia, but also the kind of work that is shown by Western galleries in in Hong Kong. I really don't think it'll make much of a difference in terms of what we will see. Um, Indeed, you know, if you look in China, you look in places like Thailand, where there are a lot of laws about what you can say and you can't say, these expressions still exist. I think people will just have to be more creative, maybe. Uh, to be so obvious is a bore anyway, so I don't see that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I don't feel we'll see or miss that sort of expression. Um and so there's that. I mean, there's, there's, there's also the art that maybe appears in political protests on the street. Certainly that will change because you can be arrested, uh, on site. The, the police now have, uh, there are different flags. There's a yellow, blue flag, a yellow flag for when they, uh, throw, um, tear gas and, but there's a new flag. It's a purple flag. And that is warning that this is a violation of the, the new national security law. Um, but again, you know, I cannot emphasize enough how creative Hong Kong people are and how incredibly creative Hong Kong artists are. Um, and, you know, if you look again across the border, uh, com you know, a certain degree of thought and creativity has managed to exist there. And I can't imagine why it will not exist in Hong Kong as well. In a way, a lot of the language around Hong Kong has always been about this idea of the two the two systems within one mechanism, hasn't it? And 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 that has always, to a certain extent, been used as a sort of selling point to anybody who has concerns about freedom of expression in the past. If there is greater integration, and if if these two systems become ever more integrated, does that have implications? Do you think there would be more concern about whether you know whether that this was a viable concern going forward? Yes, you know, intellectually, but practically speaking, I don't think that's so much of a concern. You know, Hong Kong still has a separate financial system, a separate uh, customs system, a separate immigration system. And um, I also think just, you know, looking at the way China has been operating, while because of the protest, they've had a lot of attention into Hong Kong, they have been very kind to Hong Kong. You know, when, when Hong Kong has needed help, they have opened up uh, borders, they have opened up tourism, they've opened the economy. Um, and I really think that culture is not something that uh, I would say is, you know, compared to all the other things that Beijing has to worry about is, is something that they is, is a top priority. I suppose that the thing that it strikes me is that, that might have the biggest effect is if there are changing responses to Hong Kong from the global community and we're seeing something of that and you were, you were saying you know currently the uh, the ports are as open as they ever were the kind of structures are still in place and they haven't changed as a result of this law but there there is intimation from America that that might change for instance do you think um, greater condemnation and perhaps um, uh, a change in, for instance, things like tariffs from other parts of the world would begin to have an effect on this art community in the future? Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, in terms of, like, again, the commerce here, 
I, I, I can't really imagine anyone saying that this is, you know, the, 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 the any disadvantages will outweigh the advantages of Hong Kong. Um, I have seen, you know, the, the kilometers of, of, of articles and, and commentary about Hong Kong. And, you know, for some of the articles that I just read, and especially Western press, just simply do not match the reality that we're feeling here. There is a disconnect, and Hong Kong is a special place, and people do hold that close to their hearts. But uh, in terms of how art, what kind of work artists are making or what kind of shows curators are curating, that no one is saying that this is, you know, outright that they are certainly not going to do this or, th- or do that. There's concern, but I have not seen that manifested uh, visibly yet. Um, for sure, it will be tested because, um, you know, Hong Kong people like to push boundaries and test things, and they have their own opinions. But uh, for the moment, that is really not something that I would say people are talking about. There's one one of the things that I've been reading in, 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 in newspapers has been how this is sort of, quote, unquote, the end of Hong Kong. Um, and I cannot tell you how many times I have heard that in 89 when the joint declaration promising the handover was 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 announced that was the end of Hong Kong. Ninety seven people were saying the tanks are going to roll in, and that was the end of Hong Kong too. SARS was you know two thousand and five. People said it was the end of Hong Kong. Um, and guess what? We're all still here, right? So while Hong Kong changes because cities change everywhere, they're living beings. You know the Hong Kong today is not going to be the same as the Hong Kong in say ten years, like any other city. Um, I cannot imagine that, you know, what, what makes Hong Kong work will, will change fundamentally in 10 years. I think Hong Kong will still be here. It will still matter. And it will still be a place to consume, enjoy, and create um, culture. Okay, well, Alex, thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah, you're welcome. You can read more about this story at theartnewspaper.com and on the app, of course. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. This July, Christie's presents its biennial visual feast of Asian art virtually for the first time. From rare Song Dynasty ceramics and 17th century Japanese screens to Tayab Mehta's seminal exploration of his falling figure, Asian Art Week offers an extraordinary breadth of work drawn from over 3,000 years of art making on the vast continent. View the art online in rich detail, explore Christie's enhanced virtual galleries and read more about the highlights on christies.com slash Asian Art Week. In a moment, we'll hear more about Leonor Feeney's illustrations for Story of O. But first, here are some of the top stories on our website this week. After much pressure from leading figures in the arts, the UK government announced a £1.57 billion rescue package for the arts in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, but it remains unclear how museums and galleries will fare. A government statement described the news as the biggest ever one-off investment in UK culture, and that there will be £100 million for the English Heritage Trust and the national cultural institutions in England. That's the 15 national museums, the British Library and the British Film Institute. 
but, Martin Bailey writes, the emergency assistance is likely to make up roughly half the losses suffered by the national museums, so they will remain under great financial pressure. The criminal case accusing Yves Bouvier of fraud and money laundering, which has been making the headlines since it was brought against the Swiss art dealer by the Russian billionaire Dmitry Rybolovlev in 2015, has been dismissed by a Monaco court. Bouvier said it was a total and definitive victory in Monaco, Vincent Noss writes. Criminal proceedings against Bouvier, again brought by Rybolovlev and accusing him of fraud, abuse of trust and money laundering, are still underway in Geneva. And finally, Catherine Hickley writes that a painting considered one of Bernardo Bellotto's masterpieces is to be auctioned by Sotheby's after it was restituted to the heirs of Max Emden, a Jewish retail magnate who lost much of his wealth as a result of Nazi persecution and sold the work under duress to Adolf Hitler. The work, a Dresden landscape, is estimated to fetch between three and four million pounds in an evening sale in London on the 28th of July. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Now for the first of our works of the week. Alice Mann is a reader in modern and contemporary art history at the University of Cambridge, and her book The Marquis de Sade and the Avant-Garde has just been published by Princeton University Press. Among the artists that feature in the book is Leonor Feeney, and it's an image from her series of illustrations for Story of O, Pauline Rayage's novel that we're focusing on. You can see an image of the work as we discuss it and a few others from the series at theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. Alice, before we talk about the work itself, let's talk about Leonor Feeney. Um, we talked about her actually on the podcast quite a while back, but I think we should reintroduce her. Who was Leonor Feeney? So Leonor Feeney was an Argentinian-born uh, woman surrealist who, uh, who grew up in Italy um, and joined the surrealist group in the 1930s, mid-1930s. She's perhaps a, a bit of an oddity in terms of how we try to fit her into any school of art um, because while she was one of the first women involved in the surrealist group and exhibiting a surrealist in 1936 with Max Ernst, um, by the 1940s or 50s, she sort of distanced herself from them and was probably hanging out more with people like Jean Genet and Georges Bataille. She's someone who um, did fabulous paintings of portraits. The Sphinx creature emerges in a lot of her paintings. But she also wrote her own uh, fiction and she was a great illustrator of erotic novels too. Now, Desaade is sort of a key figure in the whole architecture, if you like, of surrealist thought, right? Mm -hmm. But did she differ in the way she thought about Dessard compared to the male surrealist? So there's always this interesting tension between how between what the male surrealist did and what the female surrealist did in terms of those key cornerstones of surrealism, right? Yes, that's fair to say. I mean, uh, in the first Surrealist Manifesto of 1924, the Surrealists claimed the Marquis de Sade as, as someone who was Surrealist in his sadism. So they always emphasise the fact that the fantastic orgies that Sade documented in his Libertine novels were very much of the imagination. Um, and they showed the excesses and possibilities of the imagination where nothing was unthinkable. Um, but it's true that with some of the male Surrealists, notably André Masson or Man Ray in his photographic work, or Hans Belmer and his drawings and illustrations focused a lot on the idea of the male sadist and the female masochist and um, very much uh, in terms of the characters or the heroines if you want to call them that in Sad's literature they might have focused on Justine the figure of the virtuous sister 
who suffers in this sort of like a like a pilgrimage of tortures really until she's finally killed by nature herself the sort of mother nature who kills her with um, a lightning stroke but where we often come across images which as i say might be perceived as quite misogynistic degrading women certainly binding and wrapping and glorifying in how they might be um abused in the image with some of the women's surrealists they entered the arena of surrealism and sad differently and very much saw the idea of the libertine literature, the libertine text as something which might be emancipatory for women. So rather than a text which justified women as victims in society, they seized on the character of Juliet, Justine's nemesis, her sister, who of course is more libertine than many of the men in in Sad's text. So she's the great heroine who kills her own father, kills her own child, who is vice-embodied um, and who's obsessed about the female orgasm of all things. So what we find is a lot of the women saying, hang on, there might be a lot of sexual slavery in sad, but there's also what they described as a, a suffragette figure, a suffragette of the whip. And that's something that Feeney certainly latched onto. One of the things I'm intrigued by about Leonor Feeney is that she has quite a complicated relationship with like she said, she detested the word equality, right? So yes, you're right. She's got a she's got a, a difficult relationship with feminism, but she is an stridently empowered woman, right? So tell, can you sort of draw out those distinctions? I guess I think part of that is, and again, it's it's quite hard. I think often we tend to presume that if you're in favour of women's rights, women's freedom of expression, uh, and feminist, you would naturally decry any violence against women, sadism. Uh, and you would happily define yourself as a feminist. But for Feeney, her issue, I think, was more with the idea of a label. And so what she didn't want was to be um, defined as anything. She said she the word androgyny is something that she seized for herself because she said she wanted to get beyond the battle of the sexes. She wanted she detested equality because it set men against women. And it probably led women into the idea that if they wanted to be equal to men, they had to act like men. Whereas what she was interested in was the idea that there'd be no hostility between the sexes whatsoever. Um, and so again, part of this, I think we have to keep in mind is also the historical moment. So in the 1970s, particularly in France, we have the, the emergence of a feminist movement. But because it was a strict movement with its own manifestos, a lot of the women of the avant-garde refused to join it. Um, their notion of surrealism was something which was a worldview. It wasn't something you signed up to. Uh, and they resisted someone trying to pull them in to a women-only agenda. So I think one of the crucial things about the this generation of women of the avant-garde is that they really resented labels, categories. They were very keen not, uh, because the feminist movement emerged in the 1970s, they didn't want to be categorised as feminists and part of a women-only movement. For them, surrealism was gender neutral. Um, and I think that was what they they remained true to throughout their careers. And they weren't going to stumble, if you like, even when feminism or feminist art historians um, were going to finally seize and embrace them. Now, even though your book is about Dessard and the avant-garde, the actual image that we're going to talk about relates not to a Dessard story per se, but a kind of a story in the... I suppose as an adapted form, as you would say, the Sardian imagination, which is the key argument of your book, right? This Sardian imagination, which carries through into other other languages, if you like. Yes. Yeah, so the book, I mean, the Marquis de Sade and the Avant-Garde is obviously a huge title and it's not encyclopedic as a book. 
But the focus on the Saudian imagination is to think about how the sad, the pornographic imagination was harnessed by avant-garde generations from the turn, from the start of the 20th century through to the 21st century and how male and female artists uh, see sad as a vehicle for challenging the status quo as a countercultural voice, but not for transgression's sake. It wasn't just for, you know, scandal for scandal's sake. They use it very much sad um, and the Sadin imagination to test boundaries that were political, social, sexual. Um, and so the book gives several examples of this from the surrealist through to so, uh, art, literature, film, through to Pasolini's Salo, for example, in the 1970s. Um, but the crucial thing I was concerned to sort of show was how diverse the Sardine imagination was when free reign was given to this dark imagination, to uh, dark eroticism, and how it kept emerging at particular points of political trauma. So we find the surrealists seizing sad after the ashes of World War One, for example, very much uh, as a, a voice against fascism in the 1930s. We find again in the 1940s and 50s members, uh, people who'd been in the French resistance turning to the Marquis de Sade to question humanity, but not just to question the inhumanity of the Nazi regime, but also the treatment of collaborators after World War II. So again, the sort of questions around ethics and violence, um, Sade was used to as a, to discuss that. And then by the 1960s, Sade emerged again not just in terms of free love, but as a voice against the Algerian war, the Vietnam war, when again, the notions of a rational, systematic uh, political regime employing violence and sadism is acceptable. But when it comes to literature and the work of the Marquis de Sade, that's still censored. So often you find that it's a way for artists to critique the political status quo, but also to ask people to question human, humanity itself at crucial moments in history. And so the work we're talking about is an illustration for the story of O, which is actually from that post-Second World War moment that you referred to there. Can you say something about that book? Because the key thing is this idea that that it's written by a woman and that, that completely skews a lot of the interpretation of that book, right? Very true. So the story of O um, was published under the pseudonym Pauline Riage, a female name, in 1954. But the actual author didn't come forward until 1994, I think it was. And she was Dominique Horry, which was actually another a pen name. Her birth name was Anne Desclos. Um, and she's somebody who's a civil service, an editor at Gallimard, uh, the, the French publication house in Paris. Um, and she wrote this book secretly in her late 1940s, which I think offers us a further interesting element to how we view uh, an erotic novel. The story of O, as the title suggests, is about O, a woman, a young, beautiful woman who's a photographer working in Paris and how she decides to follow um, the request of her lover, René, and go to a chateau outside Paris in Rossi, uh, where she effectively becomes a, a sexual servant, a slave, uh, and is brutally treated there by a series of men, including René and a man called Sir Stephen, an English nobleman, very much in the kind of Sadean tradition of the aristocrat. Um, but what's interesting about the novel is that it was seized by, well, it was seized by the, the police uh, and deemed uh, worthy of censorship in 1955. But more so, it was this, um, it was called a petit porno. It was something that people were talking about and wondering who on earth was the, the person who had penned this book. And many critics said it had to be a man because it was so explicit, so sadistic. 
um, so fabulously erotic that uh, no woman could ever have possibly imagined, let alone penned, written such a thing. Um, and therefore, everyone was trying to out who the author was. The Surrealist claimed it as a Surrealist text. Um, and one of the people who was uh, suspected as being the author was a man by the name of Jean Paulon who also worked for uh, Gallimard. But the true author, as I say, came forward in 1994 in an interview. Um, she was suspected, perhaps, uh, by many in her circle, and her circle included people like Simone de Beauvoir and the Surrealists, as I mentioned. Um, but then she came forward um, and admitted that it was something she'd written as a love letter for Jean Paulon, who was her lover at the time. Um, she'd written it in the late 1940s. She joked about writing it in pencil so as not to stain the sheets when she wrote it in bed. Um, and that it became a kind of tryst between her and her lover who said you couldn't possibly write a book in the Sadian tradition. Um, and with that sort of tantalising request, she, of course, then produced a sadistic text. Um, this book then became illustrated by Norfini uh, 10 years later in 1962 when she produced a luxury edition um, of, of the novel um, with over 20 fabulous uh, lithographed uh, pen and ink wash drawings which explore the dynamic of sexual terror in the novel. And what's interesting is that the two women, while they weren't friendly, uh, came together through the publisher, Jean-Jacques Pauvert, but that actually the story evokes some of the details of the costumes and particularly a finale, a final scene in it where the character O wears this owl mask, were inspired by Leonore Fini, this radical woman surrealist who was known for being outrageous, for living with two men, a menage a trois. And who was known for wearing these fabulous costumes and also these wonderful masks for many masquerade balls. So Dominique Henri is this quite often described as quite nun-like woman. Mousy, I think, is how um, Lenore Fini herself described uh, poor Dominique Henri. Um, said that she had read about Fini in the press, seen these fabulous um, photographs of her with these handcrafted, made by Fini masks. And that became part of the inspiration for how she attired this modern woman. Uh, who was embracing sadism and masochism, obviously, in this radical way. Feeney then, a decade later, comes to the text and says she found it fabulously cold in the tradition of the Marquis de Sade. But curiously, she said, while O is this wretch who enjoys being tortured by her male lovers, she herself identified with the males, the sadists rather than the masochists, which added a further nice play on how women of the avant-garde sort of engage with Sade in this way. And of course, the key thing is also that Feeney illustrated Sad at a different point. So, so she, there there is this connection, this hand stretching across her career and across time in terms of the the Sardian imagination and now the story of O, which which uh, so so Feeney is intimately interconnected in this world, as you say, not just as a person personality in this book, but just in in terms of her artistic language. Yes, yeah, so Feeney in 1944, which again is a very interesting time, obviously, during the war, while based in Rome, clandestinely illustrated Sad's Juliette. So I mentioned already how Juliette is the libertine philosopher female role model. She's vice-embodied, where Justine, her sister, both of them are convent-educated, but Justine opts for virtue the role of martyr. Um, but curiously, Feeney during the war illustrated um, a special edition of the Marquis de Sade's Juliette. She enjoyed telling press uh, over and over throughout her life how she also um, printed it in the Vatican 
self-publishing press, which was curious, of course, because the whole undercurrent of Saad's um, writing isn't just an attack on authority and institutions, but very much against the church and the moral codes it enforces on us, uh, and particularly on women. Um, so in 1944, she'd produced over 20 uh, drawings of Juliet already. She was fascinated by this character who was happy with Parasite, Marasite, with being wonderfully cruel, um, you know, who was sort of rip out the beating heart of a child and, and laugh. Uh, she was that vicious. Um, and Feeney had long, therefore, sort of um, pioneered this idea that women might find um, a pornographic imagination which could be put at the service of women uh, and not just in the name of feminism, but in the idea that, as I say, women shouldn't be... Um, curbed by society's expectations that they always had to be virtuous, that they had to be passive, that they had to be fearful. Um, and so she said that with the story of O, what she admired was the fact that it continued this Sadean tradition of offering an alternative to women um, and that it had, it described things that were painful, things that were strange, but things that were exciting in terms of giving a voice to women's sexualities and women's fantasies when it came to sexuality. Now, one of the things that strikes me looking at the, the particular image that we're talking about is that if you think about Leonor Feeney's uh, oil paintings, there's a sort of austerity and toughness in a way about that language she uses. They're very, they're very um, stark and quite hard edged in terms of the way that they're painted. But this is an almost diaphanous ink pen and ink drawing isn't it and given the subject that it's depicting it's there's a delicacy about it which belies the extremity of the subject matter yes that's that's a fair point and um i think we often get a kind of photorealism in her oil paintings but what i think she does in her use of pen and ink in many drawings and particularly when it comes to the idea that a drawing as an illustration might extend a novel extend a narrative it means she doesn't they're not meant to sort of uh, translate text into image but to get into the whole psyche of an erotic text. And that's where the wash actually creates this kind of nightmarish gothic effect, which I think creates a sense of claustrophobia around the body. And at the same time, it sort of lures her daubs of colour, lure the eye into sort of flesh exposed, flesh bruised, or often the, the face. Uh, and I think that there's a wonderful, there's a, these, this is one of a series of drawings but I, what I find quite curious is the way the mouth becomes a wound, the face becomes a wound. And even when she uses these wonderful um, sort of aubergine palettes, these dark, it's all building out a sense of sort of bruised body. Um, and yet there's gorgeous, detailed um, attention given to the bodices, to the, the, the dress, the codes, of course, of the sort of whole S&M attire. The, the, the boudoir scene is staged through those little details. Um, but I think this is how she gets into the psyche of the erotic imagination through this wash effect. Um, and that's why she doesn't want it to be illusionistic, to be, you know, cinematic in that way, because it allows the reader to again delve into the story through their own imaginings. That's true. And that strikes me very much. Sometimes you look at an illustration to a book and you can almost identify the exact line that it might be illustrating. But this isn't that, is it? It's, it's, it's telling several aspects of the story in a way. Yes, and I think she she did uh, once describe the fact that she was intrigued by the kind of um, I think the the twisting or the entwined bodies she described it in the story, which is very good because it gets a sense of the mind and the body at work because the story is told through the psyche, the the narrative voice of O herself, who's torn between roles. Um, 
But the other thing that I think is is quite interesting is that when I went to the Fini archives in Paris uh, and, and was, you know, got the, the copy of the story vote that she'd used, the, the 1954 edition, unillustrated, obviously, um, I was curious to find what she'd marked, what she'd noted, you know, this sort of uh, sort of peekaboo thing one does. Um, and what was fascinating was there were just a few sections and sentences uh, underlined in pencil. And of course, I immediately seized on those and wondered and then went back through all the drawings and thought about how often it was the um, the detail, um, a dynamic between a male and a female figure, or a whole passage which described whips that she'd underlined quite strongly. Again, which reminds us that on the one hand, she wasn't going to try and illustrate page by page, chapter by chapter, the whole pilgrimage of O. But what she was trying to do was get into the the architecture that we have with the Marquis de Sade, the sort of chateau-like space, this really private, intimate, horrific space, and yet the attention to detail. So she had underlined details about a, a purple robe of one man, stockings, whips, and these are the little attention to details which, as I say, she chooses to to um, focus on in her selection of drawings. And unsurprisingly, she also gives great attention to the mask scene, the owl mask scene, the finale, um, because it's a form of self-portrait. Right. And that's fascinating that, isn't it? Because, it, you know, that's a separate work to the one we're talking about. But it is a rather, it's a wonderfully elegant, actually quite fun and almost bawdy image, obviously, as an image of herself. <laughs> but, but again, looking directly at us in this owl mask, a kind of knowingness about it. Yes, and I think that's where the um, it's interesting to look at how she represents women's eyes, gazes, whether they're looking inwards or staring directly and kind of confronting the viewer. Um, but the the motif of the blurred eyes or the sort of dark psyche comes through in lots of the works and in the self-portrait with the owl, yes. And in this particular image, the other curiosity, I think, is the fact you have the, the sort of phallic male who's whipping, but you have two females. So another element of the plot of the story of the O that... Um, Feeney is definitely interested in in her drawings uh, is the fact that there's a dynamic between women who are servicing who are servicing the male libertine who are helping him in his cruelty there's a figure called Anne Marie who does it who's an older female uh, and the younger woman who's the the ultimate victim and again that's teasing out the the Justine and Juliette roles the woman who's complicit and believes in the sadistic act and the fact that that is gender neutral that's uh, something that we can all tap into if you like um, and the other character the the, the uh, Justine victim figure who's more Christ-like even who suffers over and over um, and will never um, give in to the to um, selling her soul um, and I think that's those two roles are also why this image is quite interesting because Feeney wants to play out the various dynamics that are possible to people when they enter into the erotic realm. Uh, and the fact that you might identify with one or other character, sadist or masochist. One of the things that strikes me again about, about Leonor Feeney is, is, that, is that her work is, it, there's always an interesting dynamic between biography or autobiography and those sort of key tenets, the key cornerstones of surrealism that we've talked a bit about. And the way that it seems to me that in many of the women surrealists, you find that autobiography writ large, and especially with Leonor, it seems to me that that she's she's always telling a story about herself as well as a kind of much broader social cultural story as well. Is, is that is that your perception? 
Well, I think I, I would sort of agree and disagree. I would agree in the sense that I think there's a lot of the, not necessarily the self-portrait or, um, you know, sort of autobiography coming, but very much the idea that you could be many selves. Um, and that's something Feeney promotes and explores. And a lot of surrealists, uh, male and female, it has to be said, um, and of various sexual persuasions do turn to art and literature as a way of opening up that idea that we perform the self. We're not fixed. Uh, many of us just comply with society's rules and regulations, but um, they open up identity, sexual and otherwise. And I think with Feeney, she pushed many boundaries in her personal life. It's true. Um, as I say, she was noted as this sort of persona who was in fashion magazines, always being interviewed. Uh, and that's in American, French and Italian sort of uh, vogue and journals. Um, she also lived with two men, one of whom she said was a lover, one a friend. She courted many young men and, and represented men as muses, as passive creatures. So she could be seen as someone who employed quite a traditional male role when it came to... Um, her sort of self-portraiture. But I think what's more probably true about this collaboration, if you want to call that, between these two strong women, these very modern women, Ori and Fini, is that they really um, they really lived through hideous times, hideous uh, political times, and yet they had a great faith in the power of the imagination and art to perhaps, you know, remind us of the importance of being sensate people, that actually often going through the erotic body awakens us to our fears as well as our, our sort of pleasures and our dreams. And that a time of fascism and war and brutality, we have to tap into that. Um, so they often lure us in by something that seems quite personal, intimate, feminine even. But I think they were profoundly philosophical and wanted actually to go beyond their own biography and what they were doing in their work. And perhaps it's important that we don't because they're women, we don't deny them that greater platform, if you like. Um, I think they also present us with this mythological female, this image, and they felt that actually a matriarchal society would perhaps be a lot more positive and successful than a patriarchal one. So there was a feminist boot in the midst, even though they loathed, as I, as we began with, this idea that um, they should be labelled feminist or labelled anything. Thanks so much for telling us about this extraordinary artist and this extraordinary work. Thank you, Ben. Alice Mann's book, The Marquis de Sade and the Avant-Garde, is published by Princeton University Press and is priced $45 or £38. And that's it for this week. Do sign up for the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top right of the page. Please subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David's also the editor. Thanks to Casey, to Alex and to Alice. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.